Welcome to the New York Historical Society's Public Programs Podcast, featuring lectures and conversations presented here at New York Historical's Robert H. Smith Auditorium. The New York Historical Society is a preeminent educational and research institution that is home to both New York City's oldest museum and one of the nation's most distinguished research libraries. This podcast, recorded live on Thursday, October 10th, 2019, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. In this talk, Clay Risen, in conversation with Douglas Brinkley, explores the history of the famous Rough Riders Regiment that was led by Theodore Roosevelt during the 1898 Spanish-American War. I'll begin by saying I am such an admirer of Theodore Roosevelt, and one of my favorite um, moments of my career was getting to write about T.R. in Wilderness and how he saved 234 million acres of wild America with national parks and um, wildlife refuges, how he worked to bring back the bison and, and elk and antelope and all of that. And so I was with great um, expectation when I heard Clay, whose writing I admire so much, was doing the crowded hour, uh, which is with Theodore Roosevelt, uh, and I will let Clay talk about what that crowded hour is, but his heroism in the Spanish-American War, and I got an opportunity to read an early copy of it, and I was blown away by the amount of scholarship and new research in this book. And it's not just about Theodore Roosevelt, but it's about the Rough Riders, who were these legendary people But let's start, if you would, Clay, with Theodore Roosevelt. What was his attraction to the West and Western motifs? So, you know, first of all, thank you, Doug, and everybody here at the Historical Society. This is a great honor for me as a New Yorker and as a uh, lover of history. Uh, You know, Roosevelt had had always had a strong fascination with the West. He had from an early age, been, or early age as, a, as an adult, been going out west. And, and there was something both, uh, both visceral, I think, for him, that it was a way for him, you know, he was a, a man who was obsessed with his own manhood, and, and being out west was a way to test and prove that. But there was also something deeply historical. You know, Roosevelt, uh, among many, many things that he achieved in his life, he was a first-rate historian. And among his many books, he wrote a four-volume uh, history of the West, uh, history of the, the settlement of the West. And there was something about it that I think spoke to his understanding of what America was and what formed the American character. Uh, that You could best understand that by experiencing the West and understanding the history. Yeah, and he, he was born in 1858 in New York City. Um, and that year tells you that you know the Civil War is coming. His mother was from the South, um, and so they for young T.R. the West was the future, and it was the new American Eden in many ways. Yeah, I mean it's important, I think, and and it's one of the things you realize when you think about Roosevelt in 1898 when the Spanish American War started is that you know he's of a younger generation entering into life as an older generation that had really you know that had been centered around the Civil War, but also had come of age at a much earlier, in a much earlier America. You know, that, that post-Civil War generation thought about America in a very different way, and in, in a much broader way. And so Roosevelt is sort of the, uh, sort of the apotheosis of that generation, uh, brought, both expressed that fascination with the West, and, and I, I think also brought it to the attention of so many people. 
And of course, he went and all the work we know he did in New York City, but he lived for a while in the badlands of the Dakota Territory. If you go to Medora, North Dakota today, there's Theodore Roosevelt National Park. Um, and you know, the, he wrote well about the area, the Little Missouri River and the like. What was the ranching? The, you know, I just a moment ago walked by the American Museum of Natural History, and they have a rancher as one, mm-hmm. of, the, uh, one of the accomplishments of TR. What, what was his ranching life like in Dakotas? Uh, it was mixed. Uh, he was, uh, you know, after his, uh, his first wife died, uh, tragically in giving birth to his first daughter, uh, the same day in the same house his mother died, uh, he had already been going out west. It, was, uh, it, was, it would be wrong to say that he turned to the west as, as a way to grieve, but I think that was you know, maybe part of it. Uh, definitely saw the opportunity to go do something else, you know, to sort of leave some element of, pol- of his political life behind. He never totally left politics, uh, but certainly going out west and doing something uh, immersive out west, not just going and hunting or, or traveling, but actually an enterprise, uh, in, in this case, ranching. And he found... Uh, Initial success. He uh, was, you know, like a lot of people, able to get pretty cheap land. He was able to get livestock, uh, get men to come work for him. This was not that hard to do for an enterprising person, but actually to make it run uh, was was a little harder. And and I think one of the few failures of his life was was his ranch. And he never could quite leave New York behind. He kept coming back. He fell in love and got married uh, to his second wife. And there was a terrible storm that a snowstorm killed most of his livestock, and he essentially called it called it quits. Uh, but it was uh, a form, I, I think, a formative experience for him uh, because it was a test of you know his. It was one of the first times that he really had to get out front and and lead something, you know, lead an enterprise, lead a ranch, and and I think that so much of what Roosevelt become, became as a leader. You can look at some of the seeds there in that experience. Yeah, you know, today in North Dakota, they just got a grant. He, TR famously said, I never would have been president if it wasn't for my time in North Dakota. Well, the state of North Dakota's just leached onto that. <laughs> and yeah. at the, the little town of Medora, now they're going to build a museum yeah. for Theodore Roosevelt. I believe it's like $150 million they got from the Walton Foundation of Walmart, Walton yeah. family. To build that in North Dakota, um, we would take exception in New York because we have Sagamore Hill and he's from New York, <laughs> but North Dakota's made a claim on him um, because he does fall into Western history and he did meet that last wave of Wild West kind of characters. But let's get to 1898 when you have a Theodore Roosevelt as Assistant Secretary of the Navy and the President's uh, William McKinley What's the relationship between McKinley and TR like? And what's uh, TR's view of the Spanish-American War, or meaning the, the, yeah. the problems going on there? So Roosevelt, throughout the 1890s, had been uh, b- developing a career as a journalist as well, or as a writer, um, and had been uh, you know, sort of putting himself out there as a commenter on the news of the day and uh, had been a strong advocate for uh, a variety of sort of foreign policy positions, a strong navy, uh, he called for a strong army. Uh, and one of the things he, he was pushing for, particularly toward the end, was a more aggressive stance 
against Spain over Cuba. And the Cubans had, uh, had already gone through a 10-year war uh, trying to overthrow the Spanish. Uh, that ended and then restarted in 1895. And it was something, so for the next three years, it was really on the American mind. I mean, people were obsessed with what was going on. It, in some ways, uh, in this, you know, in, sort of in the same way that if we can, you know, those who uh, I think most of us probably remember, the build-up to the Iraq War, the kind of conversation about, you know, these terrible things that are happening and something needs to be done. Well, Roosevelt was a strong advocate of something needs to be done about Cuba, and maybe we have to go invade. And so when he, in 1896, he had been a strong supporter of McKinley uh, for president, uh, had really had uh, toured the country speaking on his behalf, and yet McKinley was very wary of bringing Roosevelt into the administration because Roosevelt had this reputation as, uh, as a jingoist, as, as kind of a warmonger. And McKinley, of that older generation, he was, a civil, he was the last Civil War veteran to be, uh, to be president. And he was very wary of, and, and personally, McKinley was a very uh, thoughtful person. He gets a bad rap today as, as a minor president, but he's a very important president. And one of the things that he was very wary of was as America grew as a power, he wanted to make sure that it didn't uh, expand it, that, that we didn't start to use that power, turn that power into military power, that we didn't uh, expand through military means. Uh, he was by no means an anti-imperialist, but he did not want to uh, start to become anything uh, too aggressive. And so he saw Roosevelt as someone who might push in the opposite direction, but uh, a number, Roosevelt had lots of friends who lobbied and got him this job as Assistant Secretary of the Navy, which, you know, today, that's, that's essentially the deputy. And his, Roosevelt was, Roosevelt was a, a weedler. He was, a, you know, he was a big talker. He was constantly trying to push, use any, any, any door that had a crack open, he would push through. So the fact that he was in Washington, McKinley was in Washington, this is Washington in the 19th century. It was much more relaxed. You could kind of just walk into the White House uh, and so he was constantly pushing McKinley and, and getting his friends to push McKinley and to say, look, we need to, we need to do something about Cuba. Uh, he wasn't alone, but he was one of the highest profile people doing that. And he started, um, I, I, there's always that line about McKinley's um, TR saying that he, McKinley has the spine of a mm. chocolate eclair. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. He was that afraid to get into the war. Uh, but T.R. had written a two-volume history of naval history, the War mm -hmm. of 1812. His, he was such a, knew so much naval history. Do you think that played in and the Monroe Doctrine played into why T.R. wanted to intervene in Cuba so much? What was motivating him? Yeah, yeah to some extent. I think that you know, T.R. subscribed to a, a jingoist philosophy uh, you know, that essentially said the U.S., um, needed to fill its uh, rightful role as, as a world power. And different jingos felt different ways. Some of them felt, well, that, mean, that means basically becoming like a European power and developing outright colonies around the world and, and uh, developing a strong army and playing power politics. Uh, for others, like Roosevelt was a little more in this camp. It was more about influence. It was more about uh, taking certain positions in the Western Hemisphere uh, kicking out the last of the uh, imperial or the, the last of the colonialists in the Western Hemisphere, and and you know, developing um, you know something of a sphere of influence, 
And so Cuba being the last, Cuba and Puerto Rico, being the last Spanish holdings in the Western Hemisphere, that was sort of an obvious target. You know, we need to get them out. And also, uh, but I think it was also a test. Uh, you know, for Roosevelt, just he... He, he brought to his views of America the same thing that, the same attitude that he had toward himself, uh, that America, America had to prove its own manhood uh, in the way that he had so often felt he had to prove his manhood. And one of the ways to do that was to uh, get into a shouting match and maybe a, a, a fight with, with Spain, and, and Cuba was a great way. You know, he, he would say off the cuff, well, if it's not Spain, Germany. We'll get, in, we'll get into a war with Germany. <laughs> and uh, yeah, Roosevelt had a particular thing about Germany, um, but uh, and he wasn't he wasn't wrong. We did go to war with Germany, <laughs> uh, but uh, but it was it was he was sort of looking for a fight, and uh, and he wanted America to prove itself. And so Spain, Cuba, that was a great place to make that happen. So when when TR ends up quitting being Assistant Secretary of the Navy, what's the um, departure like with McKinley? So. So Roosevelt, one of the important characters here is Roosevelt's, one of his best friends was a guy named uh, Leonard Wood, who uh, was sort of, I mean, Leonard Wood was the guy that Roosevelt, I think, sometimes wishes he were. Uh, uh, Like Roosevelt, he was, uh, Leonard Wood was born and raised in Massachusetts. Uh, He was, uh, or not like Roosevelt, but he was a, you know, Northeasterner, had gone to Harvard. He was a, he was a, a surgeon. Uh, and he had decided he didn't want to be in private practice, so he joined the army and moved out to uh, the southwest. He participated in the Geronimo campaign, got the Medal of Honor. He sort of had a reputation as being this incredibly tough guy and ended up as McKinley's, well, Cleveland's uh, um, doctor. And he was so beloved uh, and such a good doctor that McKinley kept him. So Roosevelt and he got to be friends. They had the same views about Cuba. Uh, McKinley would often joke. He would sort of come in to a medical examination. He would say, you know, so Leonard, uh, you know, have you, have you and Teddy declared war yet? And, uh, and Wood would say, no, sir, but uh, we think you should. <laughs> and and so, so when McKinley declared war, uh, you know, this, suddenly there was this problem. So declaring war is really easy. Uh, I mean, Congress technically declared war, but McKinley decided to go to war. And, uh, but America had no army. Uh, you know, we, we ended the Civil War with a million men in the Union Army. Uh, within a couple of years, by law, there was a cap at 26,000 plus 2,000 officers. And most of them were spread around the country. It was always under-resourced. The army was thought of as the worst career you could go into. It was one step above being a convict. And we get to 1898, and we declare war, and there's no one to send to war. Uh, And there was this idea that, oh, well, you know, every time we declare war, uh, um, men will rise up, just like they did in the Civil War and the Revolutionary War and and War of 1840 uh, and the Mexican-American War. And, but we needed men fast. And so the solution, one of Roosevelt's idea, was we could get men with certain skills, uh, cowboys and uh, police officers and college athletes and sort of, you know, random assortment of people who had kind of proven themselves physically and that maybe they weren't soldiers, but they would train more easily than random men off the streets. Ultimately, a million men volunteered for the war of for the Spanish-American War, but uh, but these were sort of picked men. And the idea was that Roosevelt and, and Wood would essentially take applications for this unit 
uh, which was technically called the uh, First United States Volunteer Cavalry Regiment. Uh, it came to be known as the Rough Riders. They got 10, 12,000 applications. Uh, they picked 1,000. And, and they get, again, you talk about, you know, you think about, well, some of this feels very modern. Also, some of it's sort of weirdly anachronistic. Uh, this was how the Army worked, that they would just say, hey, Roosevelt, you are a private citizen who's never been in the military, by the way. Uh, you have a great idea. We'll just let you form a regiment and uh, hire, you know, essentially hire your own men, uh, but it'll be in the Army, and, um, you know, you'll go off to war with us. And it, that, that is literally what happened. <laughs> and so, and, and McKinley wanted Roosevelt to be the colonel in charge, and Roosevelt uh, wisely demurred and said, no, Leonard Wood is actually the guy, you, I'll be his second in command. Well, and this gives us the birth of the Rough Riders. Where does the name Rough Riders come from? And what happens once Theodore Roosevelt goes to San Antonio, Texas? How do people start coming to him? And how does one apply to be one of those elite uh, group under yeah. Colonel Roosevelt? It's, so so a Rough Rider, the term Rough Rider was uh, sort of a nickname for a character, a type, a role in uh, Wild West shows. So you talk about the you know, Roosevelt met the last of the Westerners or the last of those, you know, that the West ended very quickly. And by 1898, it was already mythologized in Wild West shows. You know, people were already creating this idea of the West in 1898. Uh, and so, so there was this, so the Rough Rider was someone who, you know, could jump on a horse without a saddle and run around, you know, ride around and do tricks. And so the idea was, well, you know, the Rough Riders, uh, journalists were very, I guess it's no different today, but you know, everyone came up with nicknames for everything, right? Everyone, everything had to have a nickname. And so there were a bunch of nicknames that were thrown out, uh, Woods Walkers, uh, Teddy's Terrors. People were trying out these nicknames, and those were not very good. And so someone said, well, Rough Riders, we'll call them the Rough Riders. And Roosevelt hated the name. Uh, he thought that it demeaned what they were doing. He obviously took this very seriously. He wanted to go to war. Roosevelt was terrified that he would do all this work and would not get sent to Cuba, uh, that, that the war would end too quickly, that he would end up sitting in San Antonio uh, while, it, while it went on. So he wanted everyone to take the Rough Riders very seriously. But he realized that he also needed really good press. And you know, he's a master media manipulator. And he saw all these people are calling us the Rough Riders. OK, I'll go with that. And eventually he called his memoir of the war the Rough Riders. So he, was, he settled with, uh, with his own objections. Um, you know, how they applied, they literally, people just sent letters to Roosevelt. And they went through, uh, technically they had to go through uh, individual states and territories. So most of the men were drawn from out west, from New Mexico, uh, from Oklahoma, from Arizona. These were territories, these, you know, these... Uh, were not yet states. And, but a bunch of other people would just send letters directly to Roosevelt, and, and he would pick and choose, and, and he would uh, look through the lists that were being sent to him from the governors of these, uh, these territories. And, you know, eventually they had their roster. Uh, he wrote to, he knew the football coach, the assistant football coach at Harvard. He wrote to him and said, look, can you get, I think it was 50 guys, he said, just get 50 men, 50 Harvard men. Be very quiet about it, because I don't want all the Harvard men to come, just 50 of them. 
uh, leave by, and, and it, really, this is what they did. They got a late night train out of Cambridge and went down to Washington. They all sort of met with, met at the uh, Navy, uh, at the Department of Navy. Roosevelt swore them in, and then they got on a train. So, so for a time, they were all just men from all over the place coming into San Antonio where, where the training was. And eventually, Roosevelt went out there himself. And the recruitment, the hotel's still there in San Antonio where TR did the recruiting. If you happen to go there, you can go in the bar mm-hmm. area, and it's right across from the Alamo. Um, and so the Davy Crockett and Colonel Travis and Jim Bowie and all that Alamo thing. So you're seeing that kind of epic Western lore, and TR's now falling into yeah. it with the, the Rough Riders. Where do, what I love about your book is besides Theodore Roosevelt, you really got to look at who some of these Rough Riders were. Um, I know there are many of them, but who are a couple of, tell us a couple stories of some Rough Riders that you discovered. Yeah, so, so there are, there are a couple of guys that really jumped out at me. Um, one of them who's, if, you, uh, if you're in the Rough Rider sort of lore, is, is sort of one of the more famous ones. And his name is, uh, his name is Bucky O'Neill. And he was, again, one of these characters I think Roosevelt wishes he were, or he sort of saw his own idea of himself in O'Neill. He was uh, born and raised in Washington, D.C. He has a law degree uh, in, from a now defunct school in Washington and had, had decided at some point he just didn't want to do that anymore. And so he moved out west and had a variety of careers. He was uh, a gambler. So Bucky Bucking was uh, sort of like shooting the moon uh, in card games. Uh, he was, so he's a gambler. He was a journalist. He was a sheriff. He was a mayor. He ran for, in 1896, he ran for Congress on the populist ticket. Uh, he was all over the place, but he was also very learned and uh, could have these conversations with Roosevelt that were, you know, quoting Whitman and, and whatever the latest poetry was, but then they could talk about Greek mythology. And, and he sort of, you know, was just sort of this intellectual cowboy that I think Roosevelt sort of saw himself as an intellectual cowboy. And, you know, O'Neill, well, I, I'll give away a little bit of the book because this is the story, but O'Neill sort of also very famously, during the Battle of San Juan Hill, uh, he, was, he was one of the, uh, he was sort of leading his, his part of the regiment, and uh, he was, they, were, they were sort of in this riverbed, and they were sort of being shot at by the Spanish, and every once in a while, you know, a, a guy would get hit, and everyone, this is 110 degrees, and it was just terrible. And O'Neill, you know, he's walking up and down the line and saying, you know, okay, men, you know, we're, we're, we're good, we're, we're just waiting for orders, everything's fine. He's just trying to keep them in, keep them in line, and uh, his men said, you know, come on, get down, you're going to get shot. And he said, you know, the, the, the Spanish bullet that will kill me has yet to be made. And at that second, <laughs> bullet went right through his head. And he went like that. So, so he's a colorful character. Uh, but the other guy that I really like, and this is one that um, I think really is sort of one of the moral, uh, sort of part of the, one of the moral cores of the book is, uh, a character named Theodore Miller, and he was he was a, a kid. I mean, a young kid. He was a uh, the son of the inventor of the combine harvester, uh, and, and a very wealthy inventor. This is a magnet, uh, business magnet in uh, in Akron, and so it's, and also one of the co-founders of the Chautauqua movement. So so Theodore Miller had grown up uh, at Chautauqua and sort of in that world. He went off to Yale 
and then was in law school in New York and when the war broke out. And, you know, for me, he typified what was now sort of the next generation, sort of people, young men who looked up at Theodore Roosevelt as sort of the, the new man. Theodore Roosevelt was, was not like the older generation, was not even like, was not like Miller's father. There was Civil War veterans. They were wary about what was going on. Roosevelt was charging into the new century. And so, and they were also very moralistic. Uh, Miller was very, was, was energized by the idea of going off not just to fight in a war, uh, but to fight to help somebody else uh, in a very, very, very new idea. But, but to us, what we think of, you know, this sort of the good American soldier, right? Now going off to not for colonial gain or for for riches or just to do whatever the uh, the generals say, but you know, to go off and help Cubans fight the Spanish. And so Miller, and in New York also at the time, New York was obsessed with the Spanish-American War. This city was overrun with patriotic expressions of uh, you know, whatever, you know, there was bunting everywhere. And whenever a regiment would come through or, or a New York regiment would go off, uh, would leave, there'd be a huge parade down, down Broadway. And the newspapers, this is you know how you got the news out, every time news would come in, uh, not only would there be new editions going out, but they would put them all, they would put the news up on walls or someone would stand and write, you know, they didn't have the chyrons, so they would just write it out and chalk and say, you know, this is what's going on. And so, so it was all over. And Miller wanted to go to war. His cousin was the heir to the B.F. Goodrich, you know, was actually the son of B.F. Goodrich. Uh, so his cousin was also a rich kid from from uh, Akron, and he had gotten into the Rough Riders. So, so Miller is sitting there going, God, I really, you know, come on, I can get in. And his father would not let him go. And he's watching, he's watching, and, he's, and his father says, no, you have to finish your exams. And so he, he's like, okay, I've finished my exams. And, uh, and his father says, okay, fine, you can go to war. And his cousin says, I got it. I've got a spot for you in the Rough Riders. I convinced Roosevelt to give you a spot. Come, come meet us. And then, so he so there's this whole episode where he's rushing across the country on a train trying to find the Rough Riders because they've already left San Antonio and they're going to Florida. He's going to San Antonio. And of course, remember, there are no, there, there, there are no telephones. There are no cell phones, obviously. Uh, he's getting word. He's asking people, where are the Rough Riders? And someone says, oh, well, they, they've gone to Houston. Okay, well, I'll, you know, I'll go there. And then, so finally he catches them. He, get, he hears they're in New Orleans. So he goes to New Orleans and he gets off the train and he's running around the city and he sees these guys in their, uh, in their uniforms. And that's them. And he, he catches up with them and, and he, you know, he gets the surgeon, the doctor, you know, examines him and, and he meets Roosevelt and his cousin and he says, okay, now I'm going off to war. And one of the great things, he left this great diary. So this whole story, and then and then so he's you know and then he's in all the battles and sort of follows that through and and is always sort of very observant about what's going on and I won't give away the rest of his story. It's a great story. Read it. But, How many uh, Rough Riders are there? So there are a thousand Rough Riders in total, but they get to Florida and the uh, Tampa is where the entire invasion force is grouping, and they get to there are about twenty thousand men there in in Tampa. Tampa's not a big city, by the way, at the time. Uh, so it's, the entire city is taken over by soldiers. And it's, you know, again, the army, 
it's not really an army, right? So they don't even know how to do this. So it's really just a terrible, uh, there are you know, trains coming in with full of supplies that are unmarked. So no one knows where the guns are. No one knows where the food is or the uniforms. There are no ships. There was no merchant marine. There was no naval supply. You know, so they had to rent ships uh, and outfit them to carry soldiers. Uh, eventually, they don't have enough ships. So a, about a quarter of the men have to stay behind and about 400 Rough Riders and all of their horses. So remember, they were cavalry. They didn't fight with horses because they had to leave all the horses behind. So if you ever see a picture, a drawing or a painting of the Rough Riders charging San Juan Hill on horses, forget it, it did not happen. Uh, and there are a lot of those. Uh, they did not go on horses. Uh, so ultimately, about 600 men made it to Cuba out of the Rough Riders. Was there any um, regional or class bickering going on? I mean, how did somebody from the Ivy League or somebody playing polo in the East get along with the men from the territories? Or was Roosevelt able to really unite them in a common cause? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that comes out of this story is how uh, charismatic Roosevelt proved to be. I mean, it wasn't like anyone didn't think he was charismatic. But when he showed up, and you mentioned the Manger Hotel, you know, when he got there, uh, the Manger said, oh, you're Theodore Roosevelt. Well, you, you, know, you don't have to stay with the men. We'll give you a hotel room for free. And you come back, take a shower or a bath and, and have a good meal. And, and he said, no, I'm going to stay with my men. I'm going, to, I'm going to do whatever my men do. And that means sleeping on the floor. That means marching for miles in the heat. That means whatever. And, you know, a lot of the men were skeptical of who, who is this Roosevelt guy? The Harvard guys knew who he was, but you know, someone like Bucky O'Neill or, or some cowboy, looking at him show up in his Brooks Brothers uniform uh, with his, you know, glasses. He's not that tall. He's got a high-pitched voice. Uh, and people, you know, they're skeptical of, can this guy act? And he has no military training. But he learns, and he is so charismatic, and he is so in the trenches with the men that he sets the tone for the entire regiment. And one of the things, looking through all the papers and you know, diaries and memoirs that these men left behind, the one theme that runs through all of it is how, how, much, how quickly and how deeply they, they came to respect Roosevelt and how all of them would follow him you know, into anything. And, and it, it meant that whatever, whatever tensions they might have had, uh, whatever, whatever, you know, whatever uh, concerns they might have had about what they were doing, it just sort of washed away, because they had this man who was leading them, who said, you know, he said uh, in one of his first speeches to them, he said, I, I will not hesitate to send you to your death, but I promise you that whatever I tell you to do, I will be right there with you. He said it was something like, I, I will, I will spend your life as freely as I will spend my own. And he did that. And the men, the men adored him for it. What happened once they got to Cuba? Was they had a land and they regrouped. And then, you know, what, what culminates into the crowded hour? So, so they land in Cuba. And uh, pretty quickly, they have their first engagement, which is at uh, a little, not even a village, uh, called Las Guasimas. Uh, it was understood to be sort of a linchpin 
sort of a, almost sort of a, a, a break in the hills that they would have to pass through to get to Santiago, which was the target of the campaign. Santiago is the second largest city in Cuba. It's on the southeast side, and it's where the Spanish Navy or the Spanish Atlantic Squadron was holed up. So for a variety of reasons, that's where they went first. And so the, the landing was, you know, these 16,000 men were there to capture Santiago. So they had that first engagement to clear that path to get through. And the Rough Riders were right there. They were part of it. Uh, the main unit or the main sort of column of soldiers went uh, along a road, and then the Rough Riders kind of went along this ridge to get alongside the flanks of the Spanish and uh, it was, ended up being a much thicker fight than anyone expected and uh, much bloodier. So uh, eight Rough Riders died uh, in the fighting, um, including some, well, you'll have to read it. Uh, but, uh, but, so that, but, but they did very well. And that was, that was the thing that, um, that everyone noted. And, and not just, you know, there were a bunch of journalists who were following them. One of the reasons why this story got the, why the Rough Riders were so famous at the time was so many journalists were there with them and, and were obsessed with their story, understandably so. And so they were filing dispatches and writing very positively about what was going on. But also other officers and other units said, you know, these guys actually, you know, they fought together, they didn't run, uh, they ran, in fact, they ran into battle. Uh, they, uh, they really understood what they were doing in what was a very confusing fight. You know, this wasn't the jungle, but it wasn't, you know, it was a very thick forest. It was a very confusing place. Most of these men had never even seen the ocean, let alone been in a place like this, and yet here they are. Uh, most of them had never fired a gun in anger. You know, despite the, the myth around the cowboy, a lot of these guys were like Bucky O'Neill. You know, they were, they were professional, you know, sort of modest professionals in one way or the other. Uh, and so that, that happened, and then they went and uh, sort of regrouped outside Santiago, and that's where, sort of, over, the, over the course of about a week, the Americans got ready for, for the assault. In the big day, the, the crowded hours, July 1st, 1898, and it might be worth us mentioning that we had a great recession or depression in the United States, 1893, now, this is starting to unify the country in 1898, but who, you know, there were people that were opposed to the Spanish-American War, people like Mark Twain and uh, even President of Harvard and, and mm-hmm. others. Um, who, who, what type of people protested the Spanish-American War? Um, you know, it was a, a mix of certainly people who saw this as an opening for jingoists, who saw it as uh, a sort of proto-imperialist uh, endeavor like Mark Twain. Um, William, people who William were, James yeah, was against it. Uh, others who saw it as, you know, I think probably the best way to characterize it or the thing that unified most people was they believed that it went against the, 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 one of the core principles of, of the founders, which was that the United States should be that city on a hill, right? That we uh, are an inspiration for the world, but that we don't go out into the world uh, and invade. And, and, you know, it's it's one thing to conquer the West and and to fight Native Americans and and maybe occasionally Mexico. It's a totally other thing to decide to go into a war. Uh, The Spanish didn't, you know, we declared war on the Spanish. It was a voluntary war to build an army, to go invade another country, that this was something different. And that it... 
you know, keep in mind that this is the end of the 19th century. Uh, Europe was arming rapidly. Uh, European countries had always had large armies, but now even a country like Belgium had hundreds of thousands of men under arms. And, you know, they were, they were taking over Africa. By then, they had more or less Europe had divided up Africa. Uh, but even now, Germany was getting into the colonial game. And, and this justified all kinds of things. Big state government, you know, big centralized governments, surveillance powers, uh, taxation, all these things that really went against the 19th century small government, uh, American idea of liberty. And in this war whatever the particulars were, sort of spoke to a whole different idea about what America would be doing in the 20th century. Um, and so there it, are, there it is, and the big date comes July 1, 1898. We talk about the Battle of San Juan Hill, Kettle Hill. What actually happens that day? Why is it called the crowded hour, and how does Theodore Roosevelt end up capitalizing on that day in his political career? Yeah, so... So this is, uh, we talk about how bad things were for the army. Uh, I mean, they talk about this battle uh, in, in military history courses. They will say this, you know, it was, it was a, a line officer's battle uh, where basically the generals were incompetent. They, General uh, Shafter, who was in charge of the invasion, was uh, just but in almost every way the wrong person to be leading this, this, uh, this campaign. And he, uh, he was... Ex- extremely overweight, and and in the heat, and in he was basically laid up with gout, uh, way several miles behind uh, the front, and really had just sort of delegated all. He sort of had a plan. He didn't have a plan. This is the thing. He sort of had a basic idea. Okay, we're going to charge, <laughs> <laughs> and so. But keep it, remember, this, this is a week after the Americans had kind of arrived at the outskirts of Santiago. So the Spanish have had a chance to really dig in. And they have dug miles and miles of trenches. They've put up barbed wire. They have their guns ready. Uh, the men are, are psychologically prepared for whatever's going to come. And uh, the way that the geography is, is there's kind of this ridge between Santiago and where the Americans were. And the Americans were up on a set of hills, and in between them was a river plain. And uh, I got to go, I went down to Cuba uh, as part of the research for this book and got, you can kind of walk around this area uh, outside Santiago and really get a sense of what this would have looked like. Uh, It's remarkably untouched, uh, despite being on the outskirts of Santiago. And so, so the idea was, well, we're just going to throw our men at it. And Everyone kind of knew this was a terrible idea. And even some of the generals, some of the lower-ranking generals told, they were talking to journalists, and they would just say, I can't believe we're doing this. This is the worst possible plan. Uh, To make it worse, to get there, they had to go through uh, a path. Remember, this is thick woods. They had to go through a path that was about 15 feet wide. Uh, So only a couple of men, you know, abreast could go down it. And that led down to the river and then up a hill, and, and the hill was grassy. So it, was, it had been for, uh, it was a pasture. And so the Spanish could see very clearly exactly, and there was really only one place for the Americans to go, so, or to come out of. So they were just sitting ducks. And so the Americans, this is what happens. Oh, and there were no cannons. We had no artillery. Uh, 
really to speak of. There was a small battery, a couple of small batteries. Um, the span, but we were, we were firing, and this is getting in sort of the military arcana of it, but it's important. Uh, we were firing uh, black powder, uh, and the Spanish had smokeless powder, which meant that every time we fired a gun uh, or a cannon, that was a big signal. Hey, the cannon's right here. And, <laughs> and, but the Spanish, so the Spanish would then say, oh, over there. But when they would fire, we'd have no idea where their cannons were. So this was the setup. And so, so 10,000 men, there was another, there was a sort of a side engagement at a little town to protect, that we had to take, or that we, the Americans had to take to capture, uh, to protect the flank. But so 10,000 men go down this path. Oh, and by the way, there was, a, there was an, an observing balloon that someone thought would be a great idea to put up right above where the men were. And so the Spanish would say, oh, so now we know exactly where they are because even though there's a forest, there's a giant balloon right above them. Yeah. So the balloon ended up getting shot down pretty quickly. Uh, so these men rush out and they start getting shot. Everyone's getting shot, but they're, you know, and very quickly uh, they're sort of lined up in this riverbed and they could sort of get some, some protection behind the banks. And there was, there was no control over, you know, no one was giving orders. It was sort of, well, we didn't think it would be this bad, so I don't know. Uh, and, and eventually Roosevelt and, and a, a, number of other, uh, a number of other colonels, because by now, by now Wood had been elevated, so Roosevelt was in charge. And a number of other sort of people in a similar position started to say, like, we can't go backward. And no one's telling us to go forward. But the only choice is to go forward. So we've got to do this. And, and that, is, that is kind of the beginning of the, the crowded hour. This is what Roosevelt called his charge up San Juan Hill because it was that moment that for him encapsulated so much of what his life had been leading to. And then, you know, of course, from that became sort of the thing that made him super famous. So he was, uh, he was the first one to say, okay, man, you know, we just, let's go. And he, uh, he did have a horse and he gets on his horse and he rides up the hill. And he, the first hill was Kettle Hill. Uh, there were several hills. And so as they ran up Kettle Hill, and, and the men saw him start running. And it, it really did kind of work the way, I mean, it's, it sort of sounds mythologized, and some of it is. But, uh, but it really was the case where Roosevelt starts going up, and others start running after him. And, and it wasn't one big wave. It was sort of groups and sort of a few guys here and a few guys there and all of a sudden it, it's more and more and 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 the spanish see them coming and they start pulling back and they get to the top of kettle hill and look over and san juan hill which is just to the southwest uh the regiments over there are kind of struggling and so the rough riders then and and other regiments there's all kind of mixed together uh then they rush over to san juan hill and um you know, that became kind of the, the thing that was identified with Roosevelt. You know, so many, he, there were many highlights for him during this campaign, but that was the one that kind of embodied, and I think this is important, not just who Roosevelt was, but also this idea of this is what America does, right? I mean, you, it, it's actually very modern in this way. It sort of sets this idea that, you know, no, we're going we're gonna to charge forward. We don't have a plan, but we're going to go into the face yeah. of... <laughs> and he pop- and, Posthumously wins the Medal of Honor. Yeah, yeah. Do you think he deserved to win the Medal of Honor if well, you yeah, were looking yeah. with the research you did? I've been asked this question before, and I will, I will say, 
as a layperson, sure. Yeah. As a as a mil, I mean, I don't have I I don't. He applied for it. He lobbied for it very hard. I think that's what he lost it for. He did not get it for political reasons. He had enemies in the War Department. Uh, I think that's unfair. Uh, he was certainly unfairly denied it. Did he deserve it? I think a lot of people deserved it. I think he did some very valorous things. As far as I'm concerned, he probably deserves recognition. Um, but uh, Before we turn to the questions, um, one last one from me. So the big crowd at our TR is a huge hero, Colonel Roosevelt. It might be worth mentioning, since you're all history lovers, that we lost Edmund Morris recently, who wrote The Rise of Theodore Roosevelt and Colonel Roosevelt and um, Theodore Rex, um, you know, one of our great um, um, historians and biographers. Um, but you write well. I mean, what happens to them now? The Rough Riders come up to Long Island, to Montauk. They're in mm -hmm. quarantine. And how does TR play the fact that he's now this... The, the celebrity, maybe with along with Admiral Dewey of the Spanish-American mm -hmm. War. Yeah, well, I mean, immediately he jumps into politics. And there had already been talk of, I mean, really from that first engagement at Las Guasimas, when people were starting to hear about Roosevelt's performance and, and the Rough Riders' performance, talk about, okay, well, now what should he do politically? You know, keep in remember that before, when he was Assistant Secretary of the Navy, even there, he kind of thought that his career was over. Um, maybe not over, but you know, he he wrote to people saying, you know, I think I've missed my moment. I'm 38 years old. I I just I, other people are passing me by. That's his. That's what he thought. Um, suddenly, everything turns around, and and I won't say that he didn't go off to war with this in mind. That this was a way for him to kind of reset what he was doing, and so. You know, he had said, well, I'm not going to get involved in politics until I'm done with the army. I won't even talk about it. But of course, sort of behind the scenes, he's already arranging for, uh, uh, the, to get the Republican nomination. Um, so he wasn't popular necessarily with all the uh, kingpins in New York Republican politics. But the war and his fame uh, and prestige sort of overwhelmed all of that. And he was able to come back to New York and say, you know, I'm I'm your guy. I'm your I'm I'm the one. And, and, when, and they were up in uh, Montauk for quarantine for yellow fever and things when they got back. And that's when Frederick Remington fam famously presented them with the Bronco Buster uh, statue. And the lore grew. And and he ran for governor in the fall of 1898 and wins as the Rough Rider. Here's a question in this this kind of general thinking. Um, do you think T.R. would have been propelled to the American presidency without the Spanish-American War? Um, I mean, it's hard to say. You know, so much of so much of what happened to him over that sort of in that period was built around this uh, the the fever sort of say uh, generated around him, around the Rough Riders, around the. The war, if you were in the war, it gave you a, a validity. Um, you know, I think once he became governor, thing, sort of things were set in motion. You know, it was, it was, uh, he was famous enough that, and, you know, governor of New York, that's, you know, even more than today, that's uh, uh, just a few steps away from the presidency. And so, you know, I, I, I do think, but I guess, I guess a step back from that, I, I do think that Roosevelt was someone of a, such a, uh, an energetic character that had 
things gone differently? Had, been, had there been no war? Um, would he have become president? I don't know. But it was his aspiration, and I think he would have done everything he could to get it, and I wouldn't he doubt could, him on he that. He continued to be called the colonel. He liked to be called the colonel yeah, even more than... Uh, yeah. um, what is the most surprising thing you learned about TR in your research? I, I, you know, I think it's that, I think it's just that, that one of the things that I think he gets rightly a lot of credit for is, is his leadership's, the leadership skills that emerged on the battlefield, right, in that charge up San Juan Hill. But I think what really made him as a leader was everything that went around that, right? So uh, how he, after the Battle of San Juan Hill, there was then a siege. The siege lasted for almost three weeks, and this is in... July in Cuba. It's really hot. The men really have, I mean, they don't really have much food. Uh, They're all getting yellow fever and malaria and dysentery. Uh, They're not doing anything. Um, Roosevelt held them together and continued to keep morale very high in a situation where you just, I mean, I would have quit. I don't even know. no one quit. There were no deserters. There were deserters in other regiments, uh, but not, not in the Rough Riders. And I think that it, it elevated a different aspect of him in my... You know, I respect him and think he's a fascinating character. But just, just that, his, the demonstration of an ability to... You know, if leadership is the ability to get people to do things they wouldn't otherwise do, that's a good working definition. Uh, he showed he could do that uh, with, 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 just was a genius at, at, at that task. And that, I think, that, that is what came out to me. And he continued to, whenever he could, re- reunite with the Rough Riders. And yeah. he, I, when I wrote once about him get to, to saving the Grand Canyon, and he gave the great speech, Leave It Alone, Do Not Mart. He has fellow Rough Riders behind him. They always stood by Colonel yeah, Roosevelt. Yeah, when, when they had their first reunion in Las Vegas, New Mexico, which is, even today, not easy to get to, uh, he was there yeah. in 1899. Okay, this is a good question. Were any of the Rough Riders black? And what were TR's views on race at this time? That's a very good question. No. So uh, the Army was segregated. Uh, there were uh, African-American regiments. These were the Buffalo Soldiers. And, and actually, to be a... you know. Whereas for white people, to be a soldier was considered a, a pretty low job. If you were African-American, to be a soldier was actually a pretty good job. Um, you know, you, it's more or less a job for life. It, you, know, you would get retirement benefits. There was pension. Um, and, and, and there were black regiments in Cuba, and they fought very well. Uh, they fought in every, every engagement, uh, and... Yet, because it was segregated, there were no black, uh, black Rough Riders. Now, Roosevelt's views, and this is, he's a complicated character, and not everything about him is admirable. But one of the things uh, that's confusing or complicated about him is that during the war, uh, he was effusive with praise for the African-American soldiers that he fought alongside. Uh, and he... Even you talk about at Montauk when he was received that uh, the Bronco, Bronco Buster, and uh, there were about a thousand men from different regiments, a mixed group, uh, black so, uh, black soldiers, white soldiers, 
And Roosevelt gave this off-the-cuff thank you speech, and he went on and on about, you know, people called, people called you, you know, Buffalo, or they were, the nickname that the Spanish gave to the black, um, black soldiers was Smoked Yankees. That's just what they called them. And he said, you know, they call you Smoked Yankees. I call you just Yankees. You know, like, we're all brothers, right? That was, that was his line. But, but then very quickly, he turned, and, and, and I think it's, it may be a political calculation on his part, I don't know, but he started in, in his memoir and in and, and the way that he talked about the war, uh, he started to, uh, to denigrate the service of African-American soldiers and saying, well, yeah, they fought okay, but only because they had white officers. And they fought, but they weren't, you know, they, they only did what they were told. And, you know, I don't, th- you know, I don't think I would deploy them and uh, uh, expect much more than that. I mean, these sort of, and, and the black press picked up on this, and they were very disappointed because Roosevelt, coming out of the Spanish-American War, was seen as someone who, uh, because of his comments, you know, was, was going into national politics with a very different idea. And, and you know, black commentators grabbed onto that. And so when he started turning against them, uh, there's a lot of commentary about, well, like, who is this? This is, this is not what he said. This is, we're, we're and, 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 and it created an interesting dynamic through his presidency with the black press, uh, because people saw him as both someone with a lot of potential and yet often very disappointing. Yeah, it's like um, dining with Booker T. Washington, but then on the other hand, Brownsville. Yeah, Texas. exactly. Um, yeah. The what were in a similar vein here? What were Roosevelt's views on Native American sovereignty and self determination? No, well, uh, Roosevelt was was even if he had complicated views about uh, about African Americans, um, he had fairly negative views. I think is complicated, but but less, uh, there wasn't much positive to say about the way he looked at Native Americans. Um, he was very happy for the idea that, of them just integrating and essentially disappearing as a culture. That's kind of what he wanted. And, you know, there, but at the same time, he did have a certain amount of respect for them in a, in a weird way as individuals. And, and maybe in, in sort of a warrior culture that, you know, he sort of made up and not made up, but, you know, sort of absorbed from, from, uh, from white culture and their ideas about what Native Americans were, so there were some uh, some Native Americans in the in the Rough Riders. Uh, they were not segregated. They were not excluded, and and he was very proud of that. You know, he was able to say, well, you know, this guy is from the you know is a Cherokee, and this and and he would talk about that. Um, but but his views generally uh, were uh, were pretty uh, retrograde. Um, what did the armed forces learn from the conflict, and how did they subsequently grow and change? And what what, what yeah. did we learn militarily from? Oh, a lot. I, one of the points and one of the reasons why this war is so important is it really is the beginning of the new, uh, of, of the modern army. Uh, the Navy had already started to reform and modernize, but the army was way behind. And so one of the things that, uh, I, I, one of the, themes to understand is that, you know, we had always had this idea that America would have a tiny army, and then when we went to war, uh, we would just sort of organically absorb soldiers, and the, or, you know, civilians who would just overnight become soldiers. And the Spanish-American War made us realize that that is, in the, in the modern era, is impossible. So we, the first thing we did was we reformed the militia system. So 
uh, creating what today we call the National Guard. So back the, before then, every state had its own militia and kind of just could do whatever it wanted. Uh, and most of those ended up becoming more social clubs. Roosevelt had been in one of those uh, in New York City that never really did anything. It was really just a club. And so we created a, a new system where the federal government regulated and, and but also provided resources for militias, you know, what came to be known as, as the National Guard. Uh, we also dramatically increased the size of the standing army to 100,000 men. Uh, we uh, moved forward with institutionalizing uh, an, an ongoing education system so that soldier, professional soldiers would be continuously trained in specific uh, you know, with artillery or logistics or whatever, you know, sort of just set up this idea that, you know, essentially is what we have today. I mean, it's very different in, in, in many ways, but, but essentially is that, that seed. And, and it came out of, you know, not McKinley, but, but Roosevelt himself, when he became president, uh, that was a big, uh, a big uh, priority for him, was making sure that we fully modernized the army. You could see how amazing a storyteller Clay is. It was tremendous. The book is that good. It really should be read. I hope you get it. Thank you, Clay Van. Fantastic job. Thank you for listening. To learn more about current exhibitions and live programming, follow the New York Historical Society on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at NY History, or visit us at nyhistory.org.